Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. To support this podcast, please visit the donation page of Samuel's website or his Patreon page. There are links in the description. Samuel's Twitter is at Samuel Andreev. So, Julian Anderson, we are in Paris, and you're here this week for the Spectralism Conference at Yachem. And um, I want to start off with a question that may seem somewhat provocative, which is uh, the idea of the avant-garde. I want to know if you are an avant-gardist, and what this term means to you, and if, in fact, the notion of the avant-garde still has any real currency today. It's a, a, an interesting question because there are times when that term is taken very seriously and earnestly and becomes something people are very proud of, and other times where it becomes almost a source of ridicule and um, a joke as a term. Um, I won't say who this was because it's a composer I happen to admire in different ways rather a lot, but a composer who's dead now, um, but intermittently quite well known, rang up a friend of mine and said, completely out of the blue, a music critic, and said, good morning, in a rather ponderous voice. I am an avant-garde composer, and I would like you to pay attention to my music. Well, this was in about 1988 or nine, and the critic concerned, who, by the way, is a close friend of Elliot Carter and a big supporter of Elliot Carter's music, thought this a ridiculous way to start a conversation, and the, the, the pose behind that phrase was ridiculous. And the whole approach seemed, you know, not least pushy, uh, very self-conscious, very self-promoting, and just striking an attitude, and excused himself, saying he was very, very busy and terribly sorry, you know, got out of the conversation as soon as possible. So you can see in that encounter, the term avant-garde has had a very negative <laughs> effect. And, and, uh, but it's interesting that the composer wanted to introduce themselves to that particular person by saying, I am an avant-garde composer. Um, I would not introduce myself to anyone that way. I just say, I will, I write music. And um, people can do with it what on earth they wish to do. Uh, I, I don't presume to tell them what to do with it. Does the term mean anything? I think there are people who still think it does, but I think it has been very tarnished by what I have to call um, arrogance. What the avant-garde in music has done in terms of its discoveries, if one accepts the term at all, and I'm not sure I do, but let's go with it, in terms of discoveries of sound and new kinds of form and shape and performance media, whatever, all of that I find very exciting. And I, I'm delighted that these things, uh, which freshen music up, have happened. But what I'm not delighted about is the political and, I'm going to say, yes, financial implications of all this. What the avant-garde in the 50s did was to try and put many other composers out of business. And that I don't support at all. For example, I'm a very big admirer of Stockhausen. But... I know from people who were in Darmstadt in the 50s about the contempt with which he'd speak about anyone who was not sufficiently avant-garde as far as he was concerned. 
um, that it wasn't possible to write music like that anymore, and how dare they try, and really, it's a, this is finished now, and, you know. Um, and when you think of the music that was being written at that time by a composer like Bohuslav Martinu, I'm thinking, for example, of his sixth symphony, Fantasie Symphonique, or his opera, The Greek Passion, or his frescoes of Piero del Francesco, most extraordinary orchestral piece. Who's to say what is avant-garde? If I were to play you now the opening of Martinu's sixth symphony, Fantasie Symphonique, you would think you were hearing a piece of 70s ligety for about the first minute. It's well, chromatic micropolyphony, which is in many parts oscillating in the middle register in very fast notes like that, very quietly. It does not sound like what you, as it were, stereotypically think a mid-century symphonist writes uh, to open a symphony. So I think that such cliches are meaningless. Uh, but then again, the whole work is not like that opening passage. It does come back in places, but the whole work is not just simply that. He had other things to say and do in his music. So I think that putting other composers to scorn and to contempt is, which is a part, I'm sorry, of the history of the avant-garde generally, not only in music, is something I don't support at all. I think it's, it's itself very dodgy, very contemptible, and I dislike that arrogance. You're right, you're right to say it's also a, it's, it's a relative thing. So even, even Ligeti had a, a fractious relationship with the idea of the avant-garde when his horn trio came out and that, you know, was considered to be not not sufficiently forward moving by a lot of people, who are sort of disappointed by it. But even when when he first turned up in Cologne and met Stockhausen for the first time, and I think he showed him his first string quartet or something like that, and Stockhausen sort of looked it through and said, "Well, there's maybe two bars in there that I can accept." Some 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 withering comment like that. It, it isn't as though the first string quartet of Ligeti is a is you know a lousy piece by any by any stretch. I think Ligeti did need, and he knew it, um, shaking up at that time. He, he had got nowhere with the post-Bartok style. That was the only piece he'd managed to write of any size in it. And he felt frustrated with what was happening then, too, in his music. And he did want to break out of it. He just didn't know what he wanted to break out into. I think the remark of Storkhausen may have helped him think, OK, I've really got to just think differently now. But how differently? Because if you look or listen to Atmosphere by Ligeti, you can still hear things in common with the first string quartet and with even Bartog. There's a 48-part something like that uh, canon uh, on the strings in the middle of that piece. Uh, for those who listen to the piece, just off the very loud bass cluster. It goes on for a long time, and then as that's fading, the upper strings come in with an incredibly elaborate but slow canon. And it's a descending line which sort of does that gradually as it's going down, sort of chromatically. And you can hear common that, that thread, uh, threads, as it were, is very like certain things in music, strings, percussion, celeste, or some of the quartets. You can certainly hear the origins of it there. And also, it looks forward, in a way, because it's Ligeti's first lament. That's a chromatic lament, very much in kinship with the chromatic laments of his last period music. So I think actually these things are very, very relative. But the what Stockhausen managed to do with Ligeti was to startle him into realizing who he was. That's no small claim. But I share with you the, the disquiet, uh, the arrogance behind that remark. 
On the other hand, Stockhausen, by rather willing himself to this avant-garde position, did achieve some extraordinary leaps in the imagination when you consider that he was a 29-year-old orphan and he wrote Gruppen for three orchestras. I mean, how did he do that? And then the following year, Contactor, with an electronic piece with piano and percussion, which is an astounding work. I mean, you know, that guy's imagination was sometimes on remarkable fire. So it, it, I have... Uh, very straightforward feelings to do with the music. I like a lot of music that is supposedly called avant-garde, although it is a very dubious term, which is often used as an excuse for disposing of music by people who don't think they like this or that, or think the audience wouldn't. Uh, by the way, the real trouble with music is often the middle people who think they can determine what will or won't please an audience, promoters and so on, who make decisions sometimes that are very dubious. Well, um, I, you know, the, it's, it's useful not to have a label. For example, Stockhausen, I could play you a piece, uh, extracts from a piece called Inori for orchestra, which if I played it to you out of the blue and out of context, you'd think might be by Gershwin. And that's from 1974. It's from long after Gruppen. Uh, so in a sense, the avant-garde label damaged him because people are not playing Inori so much, which is a very beautiful piece. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I think labels as a whole are very dubious. Um, and I would avoid them myself. You seem to have escaped them for the most part. Yes, but that I'm not in any way complaining because I've had wonderful uh, possibilities as a composer, but uh, in terms of you know commissions and things, I'm very, very grateful for that. But it, it perhaps might have been nicer if I had had a label that it could be marketing this music, but I don't think it would have been nicer for me or the music. It just might have you know, been easier for people to place what I'm up to. Although the composers who have been stuck with those sorts of labels, uh, Grise and, and Fernihau and others, have, have tended to complain about it. So They have, and also the labels are sometimes a little bit silly. Um, and I, I am happy to be unlabeled. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm okay about that. Fine. But I just point out that, you know, it can be a useful hook, particularly the term minimalism. Now, it's, it's obvious that what I write isn't supposedly minimalism but actually it has quite a lot in common with minimalism. Uh, for example, I do use diatonic modes quite often. I, I, that's part of my vocabulary. It's just not only the vocabulary. Um, I've found, for better or worse, that I need quite a wide vocabulary of kinds of sound, from the most simple consonant sounds, including repetitive ones, to uh, sounds which are much more aperiodic and unpredictable and noisy and so on. I like to have a complete scale, if I can, because then I can do what I need to do, I find. That doesn't particularly, I think, uh, reflect anything on avant-garde or not. Boulez had, had an idea, I think he had a vision of history as being something teleological that's always pushing forward, and he believed in the idea of progress. At first. Right, at first. Well, you could argue that later to a certain extent as well. Like well, for, he denied it. He would, he would have denied it, but he, but he did say things that are extremely revealing. So he would refer to uh, major American figures such as, mm -hmm. uh, such as mm -hmm. uh, Ruggles, uh, Ives, and, mm -hmm. and Feldman as being mm -hmm. amateurs, which is actually a very revealing remark because it, it presupposes that there's something, there's something such as uh, a musical professionalism. And this is obviously what he tried to create in, in Paris where there's a sort of professionalized uh, status for the composer that is sort of recognized on a societal level and so on, and, and the composer has a certain technical baggage and, and all of that. But it also created a, an interesting side effect, which is that the, the avant-garde, such as it is uh, in, in France in particular, is very heavily institutionalized, which is a complete contradiction in terms. Because if, if you think of 
sort of the, the sorts of renegade artists at the end of the 19th century, writers, poets, painters, and so on, they were often marginal figures. They had very little access to institutional support. And, and suddenly, you know, if you go to IRCAM today, um, the, the, the state is behind this massive uh, cultural machinery. I don't think it's any more oxymoronic for an avant-garde to have an institution than it is for any other movement to have one. Um, these things, as I say, tend to be a little bit on the generational side. When you start out, obviously you're not known, and you get together with friends who think sort of similar things to you, that, that support what you do and you support them, and you, you, you have to get known and played somehow, and this is a very common way of doing it. And if there is a success, then you're given, you know, you're, as it were, absorbed into the society in a more uh, established way, and then you become what we say in England anyway is, quote, the establishment, unquote. And quite often the new establishment is yesterday's underground. That's not that uncommon also in politics, I'm, I, I believe. Um, well, um, it certainly happened in France and Germany between 1950 and 1970. But on the other hand, the sort of music, even at its most successful, that Pierre Boulez was supporting was by definition not commercially profitable. It costs quite a lot to put it on, and it does not make immediate profit. Mm -hmm. And consequently, it is very practical to establish certain channels of funding, wherever they are, that will make sure that in order for this music to be heard, and to exist, and to function in the society you're working, and become known and be accessible to those within that society, it, it's, that will take not only time, but it will take funding. And I think it's a very practical maneuver on Boulez's part to convince Pompidou that this was something worth doing. Um, and that eventually the French state, that the Cité de la Musique was worth doing. Um, Boulez used to say that he didn't feel that France was a very musical country and that there wasn't such a thing as a French musical tradition, it was too broken up. I can't really comment on that because um, it, I'm not, I'm a visitor here. Um, I suppose as a British person I sometimes feel the same thing about British musical tradition that it's been so broken up and... We won't even talk about yeah. Canada, yeah. Well, and I, I know, because I know very well uh, Denis Bouillon, who tell me that Canadians often feel the same thing about that. It may actually be that, and uh, do you think Germans don't feel complicated about, right, okay. So, um, perhaps everyone has to feel their own home territory. The grass is, you know, the phrase, mm. the grass is always greener. Um, but the fact is that it was pretty remarkable. I mean, I don't think since Ludwig II of Bavaria funded Wagner has there been such a, a, a state uh, commitment to what I'm going to call non-economically viable music. What I mean by that is what I've just said. 
I mean, it's, it does not owe its existence to the wish to make immediate short-term profit. That doesn't mean that I don't wish lots of people to know it and that I don't think it's very valid and that lots of people should enjoy that music. But there is no necessary connection between the quality of the music, obviously, and the immediate profit it makes economically. These are two completely separate criteria. Um, and because the quality of the music, which is a very difficult and often quite subjective, I know, um, uh, criterion, is determined by, amongst other things, things like invention, imagination, um, things that are nothing to do with the immediate profit. Um, and that doesn't mean that very great music cannot be written that does not make profit uh, and quickly. Uh, Rossini is an obvious case of somebody who did just that and who was a genius. And I admire Rossini very much. Uh, Arthur Sullivan, when he was writing his comic opera operettas with um, Gilbert, W.S. Gilbert, the Gilbert Sullivan operas, uh, that's fantastic music, I think great genius. There, there's also the more recent example mm -hmm. of Gorecki, which is a very, very strange case indeed. Yes, I would actually say that the best 20th century example or examples are arguably Aaron Copeland, uh, who managed to maintain, not maintain, but define a certain sound which is not merely uh, come to be identified as, as a, an image of America in sound, which it has, but also very Copeland-esque. Mm. It's, it's, it's not a sideline to his work, it's the core Copeland is the most popular Copeland, along with, in fact, the, all, all of Copeland's output, which is not massive, is core. He could not write anything that wasn't very typical of him. He was very, very patient, very careful, and wonderfully able to sort of click into a sound and make it Copeland-esque. And of course, the other example of that is Stravinsky, um, because I mean, a piece like *The Rite of Spring* has, has sorry, still in copyright. I, I, I adore the piece, but it is interesting that it has actually been one of the most profitable pieces of music of the whole of the 20th century. And so that shows that it's perfectly possible to do both. It can happen. It, it doesn't have to be either way. I think to insist that it must make immediate profit is obviously limiting yourself drastically. And by the way, the Stravinsky is not immediate profit. It took 40 years to become profitable in any way. With a little sense. help from Walt Disney. Massive help from Walt Disney. Massive help anyway because of the scandal and the first performance and all that. And uh, Stravinsky was, you know, a, a very savvy media personality, we would now say. Um, and with his connections with Chanel and so on, you know, it was, he was a real figure in, in, in the world. Um, but that's nothing to do with, uh, I mean, for example, I think a piece like Requiem Canticles, which is one of his last pieces, is as great in its way, a very different work, as The Rite of Spring. But that's not making that kind of profit. So there's no rule. Hmm. I just say there's no rule. And I think these days it's important to keep repeating, there is no rule. Well, that's, that, that's actually a good segue to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which was your own musical beginnings. Because your, your public career as a composer seems to have begun around 1990, approximately, with the Diptych and, uh, and Korobod and pieces like that, that that made quite a splash when they first came out. And the thing about those pieces that I think is, is quite remarkable is there, there's a very unusual mixture of qualities in them. So I understand you, you, you come originally, at least, from 
something of a spectralist background, although certainly not orthodox spectralism by any means, to the extent that such a thing has ever existed. Um, but then you also have this interest in, in, in folk music and, and very uh, lively rhythms, which is really not at all something that you associate with spectralism, which tends to have these very soupy sort of rhythmic qualities a lot of the time and, and is very rhythmically unarticulated. In its first stage, perhaps, yeah. So, and, but when you listen to the beginning of Korovod, it's, it's very striking because you have these octaves, for one thing, and this very boisterous rhythm. And it's, it's a combination of, um, of qualities that is unusual, um, to say the least, especially in the context of the 1990s. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got there and uh, sort of what the formative influences were in your early pieces. I was very lucky to grow up in a period when uh, BBC television was doing a lot of work with classical, what we call classical music. It's a silly term, but I'm going to have to treat that you know, if, as a shorthand. Um, and uh, so, first of all, the fact is if I just turned the TV on or my parents did or something, quite often you'd suddenly come across a bit of Boulez or a bit of... I remember the first piece by a living composer I heard all the way through was a piece by Andrzej Panofnik. I didn't know who he was a, at the time. It was when I was about 11. He's a Polish composer who was the same generation as Rutoslawski and um, I think now regarded as the, they're the two top Polish composers if you have to have such things of their uh, generation. Um, along with a slightly younger figure, also very remarkable, of Gratzina Baczewicz. Um, well, uh, Panofnik conducted his Sinfonia di Sfere, which is a very astringent piece. Um, everything's made from three-note cells, and it's very austere orchestration. And it's also based on multiple symmetries of both pitch and, and dura duration and form. And um, there was a talk beforehand by somebody called Anthony Hopkins, not the actor, um, who explained about the, uh, the structure of the piece and how it was made, and I thought this sounds really, how can you make a piece of music so predetermined as that and how it was sounding? But what struck me with the piece was it was so expressively powerful. And also it was very exciting because Panufnik was a pupil, pupil I later learned of, uh, conducting pupil of Weingartner, and his conducting was interesting conducting to observe. And you could see this guy was obviously a very remarkable musician. And he could put this music across, it was at a prom, the Albert Hall. And it was televised in very strikingly philosophical images and sometimes in the Albert Hall, which is a very round building, and they made use of that. And, and that made a huge impression on me, I must say, because I had not really heard all the way through a, a piece of music by a living composer who was there conducting it and before, and um, uh, so th I, then I began to think that perhaps living composers could be as interesting as dead ones. And um, although I'm, I may say at that time, I mean, I didn't realize that Walton was still alive, for example, um, shortly afterwards I did, um, and, and the, uh, Olivier Messiaen, I thought, was a figure in the history books, but he was still alive, very much still composing. So, but in any case, so I had a lot of luck having these things on TV so you could see stuff. There were documentaries that Boulez was making about Messiaen and other people that I saw. 
um, and also a great deal of, of living music on Radio 3, the classical music radio and BBC. And I absorbed all that. I can't say I always liked it, but I was absolutely fascinated by it. And uh, at that time still, there was the second wave after the war of so-called avant-garde, uh, which had started using what we call now, perhaps foolishly, extended techniques of instrumental performance. And that second wave, which means Heinz Holliger, Vinko Globokar, um, to some extent also until 74 or so, the earlier Penderecki, um, uh, and one or two other Polish composers who were much more extreme than that. You know, you heard a very wide palette of sound. Sorotsky was another figure one heard a lot of around then. You heard this wide palette of sound, and so you, you kind of wondered, what's playing that? If you heard it on the radio, it was sometimes very difficult to identify. You know, they'd say that was an orchestra piece, and you think, was it? And that began to interest me, like, why is it making this sound? What is this? But there also did seem to be a massive divide between the sound world of music up to a certain date and the sound world after that date. And that divide began to concern and trouble me. Um, I started imagining music in my head, independently of all this, out of boredom. So that happened uh, when I was at my first school and um, I wasn't, as I say, a sporty kid. And uh, the first games we had to play were, were cricket, Britain after all. Uh, I, cricket, I was always out in the field waiting for something to happen. And eventually a cricket ball would come and sort of hit you on the head. Somebody would finally hit a ball in your direction. I never caught anything. I was fitless. But you had long periods where you were just standing around doing nothing. And I got bored. So I started running through pieces of music I knew in my head. My dad and mum had uh, radio hi-fi and so on, and they had a big record collection, and I heard a lot of music that way and got to know a lot of music. But that was exclusively either Western classical music up to about 1910, or some jazz, or via my older brother's uh, progressive rock, as we call it now, prog rock. Uh, 10CC, Tangerine Dream, Yes, Genesis, um, Pink Floyd, uh, Led Zeppelin, so on. So, well, Led Zeppelin's a bit different, but anyway, yeah, all that. And so I heard a lot of that stuff, and I started just simply running through it in my head as a hobby because I was bored on the playing field, also in football, same thing. Um, and I'd do anything to avoid actually kicking the ball or having anything to do with it. Um, and uh, the game I hated most was rugby because you can't avoid getting involved and it's horrible, I hated rugby. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was, it was, I noticed I could run through pieces I knew in my head. So I did that because I loved those pieces. And I remember very distinctly the day when instead of running through in my head a piece I knew, I thought, well, why didn't I make one up? It just sort of occurred to me like that, that if I could imagine music by, I don't know, Rimsky-Korsakov or whatever, but why can't I just make a piece of music up? This would have been around what age? I was 10. 10. So um, perhaps even earlier, but I, I, certainly by the time I was 10, this was going on all the time. And I, so I made up a piece that lasted as long as the rest of that football match lasted. I think it was in the style of Shostakovich. I was very keen on Shostakovich at that time. Shostakovich's fourth symphony was a big 
thing for me. And um, which is the last piece he wrote before the Stalin clampdown, in a way. That's uh, funny. The first mm, and the fifth mm. were, were some of the first things that I listened to mm. when, I was, when I was quite young and getting into classical music. It was an accident in my case. Um, my parents bought me, as a present, a recording of the Fourth Symphony by Eugene Normandy in the Philadelphia on CBS. And um, it, that happened to be in the shop at that time. They thought, well, so they gave me that. And I, w I was very excited by it. It's a very crazy, loud, wild piece. And I think my aspiration was to write that kind of crazy, wild, loud piece. But it's, it's, it's a style, by the way, generalizing. I mean, of course, he's a genius. But the style as such is something that is quite easily graspable. Um, I think that's one of the reasons it's still very popular, because it's not hard to chunk it mentally. Um, and then he can do a lot with that. Um, so I, you know, the motor rhythms, the the sort of very memorable melodic tags, um, revving up of ostinati and so on, and parallel harmonies, all kinds of stuff, you know. And so I had a go at that, and I rather enjoyed doing it. After a while, um, I became a bit, I suppose the adult would say, concerned. But as a kid, I just became worried that I, I was doing this and I didn't know how to write it down. I, did, I had piano lessons, I read music as a kid. I was taught to read music. But um, I, I actually thought that you couldn't really write music for others to play unless you played all the instruments that you were writing for to a professional level. Now, in fact, we now know there are some composers, freaks, who actually could do that. I think Hindemith was, was one who could get, anyway, decent music out of almost any instrument at all. Um, and there are one or two composers I know, actually, who are very dexterous at just picking up an instrument and making music happen, even if they've never played it before. Anyway, my piano teacher at the time, I remember saying, I told her at one point, I said, oh, I, I made up a, a rather fun piece yesterday. Um, and she said, do you, so you, do you compose? And I said, is that composing? And she said, well, what do you mean? And I told her what I was doing. She said, that sounds like it's to, to, make, you know, to do with composing music. And she said, do you write these pieces down? And I said, no, I, I, I don't do that. I don't think I can because I don't play the oboe or the trombone or the tuba or the whatever. Because um, I, I can only play the piano. How can I know how to write for those instruments? A composer, I presume, has to be able to play all the instruments. And she laughed and she said, whatever gave you that idea, that Beethoven didn't play the trombone or the clarinet? And I said, he didn't. And she said, no. Um, I think he was a pianist and a bit of a violinist, and that's it. And Mozart similarly. And I said, well, how, how do you get to that? And she said, well, what you need is an orchestration textbook. <laughs> Which was rather good. She said, do you have a local library at home? And I said, yes, we do. A big one, actually. And she said, well, go in and start borrowing stuff like that and look at these things called full scores. And um, then there came the nightmare because I found that, of course, full scores, not all the instruments are playing the notes they look as though they're playing. This thing about transposing instruments in the wind and the brass, where they, they, you write the notes they finger, not, not the sound. Um, and that anomaly bothered me for quite a while, I must say, until I learned that contemporary composers write all their scores at sounding pitch. So um, 
I started doing that. Um, but I didn't start doing that for some years. I, I forced myself to write it all the proper sort of way, you know, that Shostakovich has all written transpositional Bartok or whoever, so I thought I should too, which is not a bad discipline. Um, but, I mean, of course I tried to write these monster orchestral pieces that I was imagining in my head down, and, of course, I quickly discovered that's, that's incredibly difficult to do, and not only because of the difficulty of orchestration, but also you think you hear something, so you go to the piano and say, well, right, what is it I actually do here? Now, the other problem is I'm, I'm a all right pianist, but I mean, I had no amazing talent for that. And I couldn't just sit down and write what I heard. I was convinced I did hear it actually pretty precisely. In retrospect, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I think I heard the kind of noise some of the passages made. I think others were precise. I don't know, but that's my guess. This seems to be something that people find especially mysterious about the, the mm. process of composing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult for a non-musician to comprehend how you can hear sounds in your head and, and write them down. And uh, the, the, the notion of inner hearing, I think. It's a very important thing for a composer, that. I think if you don't have inner hearing, it's very difficult to... Well, who am I to say? Because, for example, there are many ways of making music, you know, improvise it and so on. Uh, etc. But I think inner hearing is one of the special things a composer can do. The way that, for example, painters tell me they look at uh, canvas, blank canvas, and they can see what painting they want to see. It doesn't mean that's always identical with what they finally do, but they can see it and they have some idea how that could be made. Um, and I think that similar facility for a composer is terribly important. What I gradually realized is you have to train yourself to do it. And then I was very lucky that my first main teacher, uh, John Lambert, who was a student of Nadie Boulanger, was very hot on oral training. So I was really dragged through the holly bush backwards, as it were, orally. I was really trained hard in how to hear pitch and, and things like that. And then I developed, uh, through looking at scores and listening to them whilst looking at them, I developed the knowledge of what I'd heard in my head, how to, how to make that, that, those sounds. Because in fact, in any orchestration, up to a certain point, if it's traditional orchestration, there are certain absolutely workable formulas for scoring that will produce a set of very recognizable orchestral sonorities. And it's important to have that up your sleeve and know how it's done, because you might need it. Now, of course, once you know that, you can do many, many, many other things. And I, uh, of course, didn't just want to make those sounds all the time. But I had to learn how to do that, and that took many years. But you have focused on, I mean, there's a preponderance of orchestral pieces in your catalog. Well, that's why I started to write music. I heard the orchestra uh, on record, in those days vinyl, and um, on the radio and on television, and I just loved the sounds that you can get from the orchestra. Uh, I've uh, recently, particularly the last 10 years, hugely enjoyed writing chamber music much more as well. Um, and now I've written three string quartets, which I, I certainly didn't think I'd be the person who could talk about my third string quartet because I didn't think I'd have one. And um, so that's, that's great. And I've loved writing opera. And I'm hoping to do so again in the next few years. And oratorio did, but the orchestra for me remains the absolute love of my life. I think the Western Symphony Orchestra is a fantastic invention of culture. I think we can be very proud of that. I also love very, very much uh, the ensembles and orchestras from non-Western traditions, particularly Japanese 
Soko Gagaku, um, and uh, the, the Imperial Court Music of Japan, which is Gagaku, um, the Court Music of Thailand, and traditional ensembles from Laos, and of course the Balinese and Javanese gamelan orchestras, which are fantastic too. So there are many traditions of getting together pe large numbers of people, or large-ish numbers of people, in groups to make instrumental colors that you can't get from just one or two people. Um, and I'm, I'm just addicted to it. I love it, and I, I th also love working with orchestras. I think that's also something that, that sets you apart, though, because um, particularly younger composers are tending to shy away from the orchestra, for, partly for practical reasons, uh, because it's very difficult to get those pieces played. The economics of it are, are pretty crazy. But then also in, in America currently, there's a kind of sense that uh, you know, a lot of the orchestral compositions that you hear, as, as you know, sounds sort of like pseudo-film music. And those are the sorts of things that, not always, but there's, there is a fair bit of that happening. Well, also, both in America and elsewhere, and uh, in, in Europe, also very much there are some composers, and this isn't new, this happens periodically, who say that the entire institution is moribund at uh, the orchestra, that it's uh, irrelevance, that it's a... Quite often the adjective bourgeois comes somewhere up in this argument, and that it's um, worthless to a contemporary composer that they... Um, you know, it's not, um, it's elitist and so on. Um, I don't agree with that, but I think that people who do think that can often refresh the whole arena of composition very, and music very wonderfully. For example, the decision by Louis Andreessen and uh, Peter Schatz and uh, Diedrich Wagner, uh, I don't pronounce those names well, sorry, um, in Holland in the 70s to get out of the Concertgebouw milieu and avoid it and uh, having critiqued it, just say, all right, let's do our kind of music on different kinds of groups. And that gave us new groups, uh, 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 new ensembles and new sounds. And interestingly, not that long afterwards, there was a piece by Louis Andrews, a very fine piece for two baritones and what I think the rest of us would call an orchestra called Mausoleum, which is a tremendously powerful piece. Um, which, however, would not be as it is if he'd not spent years doing pieces with his groups, Hocatus and Default Harding and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that these things can actually mutually influence each other. If you just go round and round in circles with the uh, established genres and you don't freshen up, you can go stale. And the arena and the cultural milieu can go stale. Um, if, on the other hand, you just perpetually want to, let's say, play street music like Default Harding originally was. Well, part of the tension, Louis now says in Destart, uh, that extraordinary kind of epoch in Dutch music terms, epoch-defining piece that he wrote between 72 and 76, um, part of the tension and, and frustration even that you can feel in that music is because he'd realized, as he now says, I don't, well, this is my interpretation, so I don't want to uh, misquote him, so let's allow for that. Uh, but my understanding is that he felt, I can't do what I now need to do musically just with the street groups that I've been doing, that he'd been doing. That he, he could not get uh, the complex rhythms, the density of information, the change, the speed of articulation, so on, with some of those groups. Maybe you could define the street group just for those who mm -hmm. might not be familiar with the... Well, I, I wasn't there at the time, so I'm only judging by photographs and the odd video that one's seen and so on. But uh, Volharding, which is a piece by 
uh, Louis, which is, means perseverance, I believe, in Dutch, uh, was formed, for, I can't remember the exact scoring of it, but it was for a group of brass and percussion and so on, which, which you could play in the street. And I think they, they did go on demos and things, playing repertoire and on you know, street buses and things like that and took the music out of, out of the hall. Um, and got it across to people that way. There was a, also a, a group called, I think, Electric Circus uh, that Peter Schatt ran, which was a music theater group which had its own mobile tent that you set up in parks and things and did pieces like his, his work for voice and ensemble called To You, um, which is a sort of protest piece in a way. Um, you know, the, the, that kind of group which inevitably also it meant raising the dynamic level because you see if you're in a park or you're in the street, if the music's to be heard, it's got to have a certain dynamic. Um, and so that answers part of the question, why distart, a lot of distart, for example, is very loud. Most of it is very loud um, because he'd been working outside uh, or in clubs where people talk while they hear music. And so again, the music, if it's not to be just background, if it's to be heard as such, if people are to be able to walk around and chatter a bit to it and so on, it has to have a certain volume. Um, and that volume became an element, I'm sure that was also partly a reference to rock music at the time, uh, became an element which, which then transferred to what really became concert pieces. Um, though Distart can be, I've seen Distart done in warehouses and all kinds of places, but it was premiered actually, I believe, at the Concertgebouw Hall. Not by the Concertgebouw, but by the Netherlands Wind Ensemble. Um, and I think uh, that such ventures can freshen things up enormously. Um, but I haven't myself founded such a group. But I don't discount that one day I might have a go at it. Who knows? I don't myself feel the, the need to do that. But one can learn a huge amount from people who do. I mean, as a kid, when I say kid, what I mean is as, as a, uh, in my 20s, I actually did help uh, run a, a little new music group, which was a group of composers and performers. Because, you know, we were all young and we couldn't get anywhere without just putting our music on ourselves. So that's what we did. It was a very useful experience. Um, but, uh, I mean, quite quickly we all went in different directions, also the players. Um, and... Um, so the group eventually stopped. It, it actually existed for about seven years or eight years now, I think of it, and did some gigs. It was a useful experience. But I, I think there is one concern. Um, any composer does not want to spend the time making music, however they make it, whether it's live improvisation, whether it's uh, sitting alone in a room with manuscript paper and, or the computer, and putting together a, a notated score, whatever the way, it takes time and trouble and skill. It really does take skill. And um, you're not going to spend the time training to do all that if you don't want anyone to hear it. I mean, it's not a question of making money. It's just common sense. You know, I want to share the sounds I find exciting with, with other people. I hope there's somebody out there who may also find those sounds exciting. And consequently, one doesn't want to only operate in a milieu where you know that only 10 other people who are friends of yours are going to ever hear it. Well, that is a charge that's often leveled at... at uh well, certainly the musical avant-garde, to use that term again, but, mm -hmm. but new, new music in general, which is that it's sort of a closed circle and it has a, uh, you know, kind of a, a, an in-group sort of feeling to it. But that, that's not at all present in your work, which is very, uh, I would say, very outward-oriented. It's very, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it has a certain vitality to it. It's very communicative. Uh, it's, uh, it's, not, it's certainly not what you would call easy listening, 
but at the same time, it, it, it's not um, it's not it's, it's not attempting to uh, create a friction-filled relationship. With this. There was a as a primary concern. Yeah, there was a um, a book that Boozy and Hawks published in the '60s about Xenakis, whom they just signed as a house composer for a while. And it was an interview with him and Mario Bois, who was head of Boozies in Paris. And it's a very good interview. And Zanakis mentioned something which stayed in my memory, which was that, he, of course, he'd known Varese pretty well in the 50s. And at, at a certain point, Mario Bois asks him, what is your attitude towards the audience? And the reason he asks Zanakis that is because, famously, Zanakis' music is not exactly shy in its dynamic level or its um, you know, use of sometimes quite startling sonorities. And why um, I think asked something like, do you want to shock people? And he says, well, I don't know about that. Um, but I remember Varez said to me about the audience, he said, yeah, well, the audience, you've got to put a bomb under them sometimes, haven't you? you know? He said it's a very typical remark of Varez. Um, well, possibly it is a typical remark of Varez, and possibly that side of Varez leaves me a little bit indifferent. I come back to the ad adjective of adolescent. Uh, it seems to me rather a shame if all you can think of doing to people is just sort of beating them up. Um, on the other hand, there is a great deal wrong with society as we see it, and at the moment it seems even more so than, than before a great deal of tension and um, irresponsible action on some people's parts, which I won't want to go into in this interview. But, you know, uh, when you see the way that the media can be manipulated by people to... Uh, to um, the media be can be manipulated, obviously, to fool people, frankly, into believing this or that, you, I think, would be foolish if you only think that what you can do with an audience is to sort of um, soothe them. Um, I wouldn't mind waking them up a bit, perhaps. But to be honest, I don't really think about such things because I think if you try and please everyone, you can't. And if you try and displease everyone, that's equally silly. So, for example, although I actually do admire Varez enormously, as I say, I don't... Uh, I can pick a specific passage, although, in fact, I think the piece is a staggering masterpiece. And that, you know, but still, um, Amérique, the end of Amérique, there is a sense in either version because there are two versions of the piece, uh, there is a sense in which he is really just trying to rough the audience up as much as possible. I mean, given when the piece is written, this is about the most excruciatingly, deafeningly loud, dissonant sound he can get out of an orchestra at all costs. And the piece has not exactly been lacking in some outrageousness before this, but he knows that the end has got to cap all that, and he really unleashes the most thunderous sound. Now, these days, one can slightly sort of Perhaps this is not the right way to listen to it, stand back from that and say, yeah, well, okay, that was, that was then. And these days, one's heard so many crazy sounds that, you know, what's what? Well, that's... But if you just try and think remotely back into the mindset of an audience that's reared on, you know, Schumann, Brahms, whatever, to hear that suddenly, was there was clearly an aggressiveness to it. And that leaves me indifferent. I'm not interested in that because I think it's too local. It's too specific to the culture and time of the place. Of the, it dates, in other words. Well, it's not, it's not really a, an intrinsically musical concern. It's nothing to do with music at all. It's to do with his frustrations with his father, I suspect, by the way, too. 
apparently Varese, uh, to the end of his life, hated his father and would go on and on about how he hated his father and how horrible he was. And I think his father was violent, and Varese at some point had to fight him to protect his mother, which is an awful business. Uh, but I think Varese, one does hear the sort of that frustration, that anger against the world. Um, it's not an emotion that, that I'm, I'm sympathetic to the social situation that he grew up in, which is awful, but it's not an emotion I share. Um, I don't think that the audience should be hit. I don't think it should be soothed or lulled. I don't think it should be anything. I think you, you follow the music and you follow the excitement of, of the music that you're trying to write, and sometimes that will come out uh, in some sonic violence, and sometimes it won't. The piece you mentioned, Korovod, is, is, is a piece which also has some violence in it, but I thought of that, if, if I thought of it at all, as a celebratory piece. After all, when I started it, which was in 87, 88, um, Eastern Europe, which is very much involved culturally with what that piece is about, was almost entirely under the so-called Iron Curtain, politically, the communist right. regimes that were effectively almost puppet governments of the Soviet Union. Until 91. Until 90 to 91. Well, really, the end of 89 was the beginning of that end. And it was very important for me when I was writing the piece that um, just about a year in, no, 18 months in maybe, um, in the winter of 89, the end of 89, all the velvet revolutions in Eastern Europe and the end of the Ceausescu regime in Romania and all that stuff, one was following on the television and radio and I was making my shortwave radio to try and hear what was going on and see if I could catch any broadcasts from these places. And it was terribly exciting. The sense of something that had been really in a kind of deep freeze suddenly opening up like that and I was I was going crazy with excitement at that um, also very worried about what the future would hold but for the moment for that moment there was a sense of and the piece is about that the so piece is definitely about that from, from my point of view I can't separate it from that emotion which was terribly I just never thought I'd live to see that it was unthinkable it really seemed unthinkable and so uh, you know, it was it was a moment of extraordinary liberation, and the piece is about that. That's what that piece is entirely about. I think that the that's very audible from the opening, that that piece is about celebrating uh, sound and energy. And since the melodic styles that I was thinking of in the piece were in many cases connected with uh, Lithuanian, Russian, uh, whatever folk music from. Eastern Europe, and that, that played a very big part in it, yeah. Let, let's back up a bit also and, and talk about some of your um, involvement with French music, because I, I understand you, you studied with, with Alexander Gurr and mm -hmm. uh, also the Royal Academy. The Col Royal, Royal College, Royal College, yes, Royal yes. College of Music in London. Uh, with, also, with John Lambert, yes. John Lambert. And there's also a, a certain French influence in your work. And um, I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit, uh, specifically with regards to spectralism. Uh, because that well, that, that's something that I haven't actually addressed yet on my channel, so uh, not all of my viewers. It's, it's true, I suppose. You haven't, have you? No, no not yet. I, I will. I will be dealing with it. Uh, but it's something I haven't gotten to yet. So for those who maybe aren't familiar with spectralism, 
Maybe you could just give us the sort of dummy's guide to... Uh... I'll try. You could probably do it better than, better than I can. So one of the things I think that a lot of music since, really since about 1908 or so, has been really focused on is, is the sheer stuff of sound. Um, you find that in Schoenberg's third orchestral piece of his five orchestral pieces called Farben. Uh, and you find it in all of the other orchestral pieces in that set too, and in the Weber and Berg sets of that period as well. But you also find it in Right of Spring. And, and of course, this comes from many different routes before, which we don't cover now because of time. But the point is that the, there was already before World War II, uh, uh, the, the actual sheer physical stuff of sound, people were discovering so many aspects to it that, that they didn't previously use. And the vocabulary, therefore, of music was expanding, and that continued to accelerate it after World War II in many different ways. And also in the popular music of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that also accelerated. Um, I mean, if you take the progression from, let's say, the first Beatles albums to the White Album, uh, by the time you've got the White Album famous, you've got one track, Revolution 9, which is basically music concrete montage. And that was not something that in 1963 the Beatles would have thought of doing at all. And so you see, even that, as a, I say even that simply because um, the commercial con constraints on pop music are such that there are, there are sometimes limits as to what sounds and, and idioms you can use. And what's wonderful about the Beatles is the way they crash through all that, more and more and more. And before that, also with Sgt. Pepper, they already crashed through the notion of what a track was. Well, the, the entire career of Pink mm. Floyd would have been mm. unthinkable without this uh, this focus on the material aspects of sound. And, and they, of they course, come later, of they come a little bit later, but yeah. it's good you mentioned Pink Floyd because the instruments they were using, the electronic instruments they were using, notably the VCS3 synthesizers, a little box from that period, was made in Britain, by the way, by uh, Peter Zinoviev, uh, an engineer and writer. Um, uh, who ran electronic music studios in Putney, and that was the same instrument that you find in Stockhausen's electronic pieces of the same period. That is very interesting. And so the sounds that were spreading around were the same sounds. So what I think happened in the 70s was a focus not only in certain composers in France, but also in Germany, in Romania, um, America it was already happening in different ways too, uh, Japan, other places, was say, all right, well, if we're going to make music with sound, why don't we actually look into the acoustic structure of sound and make music from, from that? The notion that you can... So what happened was they started saying, well, why don't we see if we can make music using the acoustic structure of sounds, um, as well as music that focuses on sound quality, but really actually analyse the insides of sounds and make music from that. That's both a brilliant idea and also a slightly strange one if you think about it because there's no necessary relationship at all that should be between the things uh, that you, the, the structure of a piece of music and the acoustic structure of a, of a, I don't know, a bell or a trombone note or whatever it is. There's, there's absolutely no necessary connection between the microscopic structure of a sound and the large-scale structures of a piece of music. I mean, that's, but on the other hand, that sort of could be interesting. And so that was what uh, Gérard Griset in Paris, also Tristan Murai, um, Michael Levinas, um, Hugues Dufour, who coined this term spectral music at the time to describe this sort of procedure. And uh, in Germany, 
Mises, Mai Guashka, uh, Clarence Barlow, Johannes Fritsch, uh, Claude Vivier, and others associated with Karlheinz Stockhausen's class originally, started to do. The odd thing is that it hadn't really occurred to Stockhausen to quite do that um, himself. I mean, he'd, he'd done almost everything else except that, but it, but it hadn't quite been his procedure, not quite. There were certain analogies. Well, anyway, so these younger composers of that time started to look into sound. But there's Stimmung, though, which... which yes, yes, sorry, excuse me, you're quite right. There, there is Stimmung, which is a piece for six voices, which is based on the uh, harmonic series and uh, is a very consonant piece for six voices, just meditating on a certain harmonic series, and it doesn't modulate, so it doesn't move from that harmonic well, series. The harmonic series, if you, yeah. it gives you a dominant ninth chord. Uh, well, it, 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 in some slightly strange tuning, but yes. And, and so he, he dwells in that for 70 to 80 minutes. It's a piece which, whose duration can vary. Um, and that's true, but it's, it's a one-off. I mean, he, didn't really, he then did something quite different. Because Stockhausen at that time, was every piece was just a completely different world. It's rather extraordinary, 20 years where every piece is different. Anyway, um, the younger composers really started focusing on that, and um, that resulted in a number of very interesting and beautiful pieces. And I want to emphasize that adjective, beautiful, because uh, in the 20 years after World War II, I think many people in Europe, and perhaps not only in Europe, felt that the notion of beauty was deeply suspect because, after all, very much beautiful music had been written in a culture which then eventually became uh, a Nazi culture and indulged in mass murder and genocide and so on. And that, for many people, was something so atrocious, and it is, of course, still very hard to understand. Very hard to understand. Who was it that said that it, it's impossible to write poetry after the Holocaust? Adorno said that. But I don't think... I, I, I don't think you can legislate for how people should or shouldn't react beyond, beyond the obvious one, that it should have been impossible for a society like that to do what it did. And unfortunately it wasn't, and that is a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful precedent and one that we can never forget. I uh, have written a piece of violin concerto for Carolyn Vidman, a wonderful, uh, wonderful, inlibricable, um, funnily enough, a piece involved with German culture, um, for this wonderful violinist, Carolyn Vidman, and she told me that um, her parents mentioned to her that their generation in Germany could not, after the war, could not go to a concert or an art gallery or whatever without feeling guilty if they were having too much sort of beauty around them and so on. They felt they had to go through this sort of very harsh world. They had to confront the harsh realities of life, as it were, through, the, through art or music or whatever. And um, that this was at the time a, a social almost must, a necessity, because of what had terrible things that happened in the 12 years of the Hitler regime. Um, I don't want to comment on that or whether it's true or not true or whatever. There are many ways of looking at that situation. Um, by that situation, I mean the music of the 50s and 60s and indeed the art and poetry and culture generally in the 50s and 60s. But a certain iconoclastic streak is very, very clearly present in a lot of it. And um, what 
was great about the spectral music was that it connected up with some very basic realities in the way we hear and the way we perceive sound and the way sound does behave. And but connecting up with that did seem to make a great deal of sense. But of course, sense isn't, a, I don't think sense, sensible behavior and artistic behavior are necessarily the same thing at all. I certainly don't think logic and music have a great deal to do with each other. And what was great was the imagination that the spectralists, uh, Kaya Sariaho was very prompt, is a very prominent person influenced by the sensei too, applied to uh, the stuff of sound. And yes, a great beauty did result of a sort which perhaps the previous 20 years of music had not had so much of. Um, I don't feel it was self-indulgent, and I didn't feel it was in denial of all the innovations that have been achieved, and contrary, it built on many of them, um, and has also, Tristan uh, Murai, one of the main spectral composers, said somewhere that spectral music did give rise to some very beautiful sounds as well as some of the ugliest sounds in the history of music. <laughs> um, in other words, you use what you need to use. But what it did do was, a this is a, I think can be said to be something of a French thing in painting and music as well, to use color as a structural device rather than just as sort of decoration, although actually decoration as a, as a high art can be something fantastic. But uh, rather than just as kind of window dressing, to really use... Um, the color of sound, the texture of music, as an actual structural, uh, as a form-building device. And that's very exciting indeed. And it did seem to offer a new angle into the music of the past, too. I was never a great fan of the myth of the tabula rasa, of, of the starting from zero hour in sort of 1946 or whatever it would be. Uh, I think that kind of myth is is really dangerous for any art um, because, you know, a great deal has been achieved, whichever way you look at it, in so many traditions around the world, and why would you want to cut yourself off from all that? That's just goes against every grain of common sense and, and certainly goes against my artistic wishes, totally. So I, I love the process of building and changing, but not destroying. And that was great about the spectral movement was that it felt as though they were building on things that connected up with Mozart or Gamelan or whatever, because of course sound is sound. And also there was something perhaps attractive about this is that sound, this is a cage quote, sound does not know its history. In other words, you can look at any sound and it could have, as if it just dropped down from Mars or something, and just see what it's made of. And you don't necessarily have to worry about who else used it and how they used it. Though the nice thing is that if it's a sound or a sound world that does have traceable history in the past, that can nevertheless be evoked indirectly in what you're doing with that. And that, and that can be something very exciting too. So that it, it was a sort of celebration of, of, of what's positive about working with the the physicality of sound, and that, that's what attracted me to that. There, there is in spectralism the idea of, of modeling your composition, either formally or mm -hmm. the materials or whatever it may be, on some kind of often extra-musical uh, entity of some kind. Well, that's funny you should say that, because Grisier said, of course, that he wasn't doing it from extra-musical things. It was all to do with sound and not to do with these other things. Um, so it's ironic that you should say that. Well, 
extra musical. Well, they, they, they can be musical, of course, but if, if, you, if you take a composer like uh, Philippe Rufa, for example, who, uh, who will build a large form of a piece on, you know, out of uh, 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 out of the, the sort of voice sounds, for example. Yes, and, and Grisey also did that in Les Chants de l'Amour, yeah. yeah. But I, I repeat what I said earlier, that there's no necessary connection at all between the structure of of an acoustic vibration and the structure of a 20-minute piece of music. I mean, they're not perceived the same way. It can be rather cute to, uh, to structure it that way. It could be a very nice shape, it can freshen your music up. That's fine, but it doesn't mean that when you hear it, you think, oh, yes, there's a, there's a, there's a loud climax here because in the fifth format of the vocal sound, it was, there was a peak. No, that's, that's, that's self-deception. You know, a lot of great artists produced by self-deception, I have to say. That's true. And, and you can get results that are uh, completely unintended also. Uh, or you can have a very oblique relationship yeah. between the... The, uh, the, the, yes, the means and the ends, yeah. The means and the ends. Mm. So let's talk about how that manifests in, in your work specifically. So um, maybe you could sort of work us, walk us through your working process. How, how exactly do you go about creating a piece? And, and maybe we could talk about the piece that you're currently writing. Uh, which is a cello concerto in that, in that respect. I'll, well, first I'll generalize a little bit. Um, a piece of music comes to me usually quite a lot of years before I write that piece. I suppose that goes back to my experience as a kid of imagining music when nobody, I wasn't, you know, writing music for anyone. I was just doing it for fun. And part of me is still, you know, interested in the fun side of it. It should be fun, I think. Um, so I always, you know, what's great about uh, having uh, a creative activity is to just let your mind loose and say, well, what if I do, do this or that? And just let your mind go on, a, on an idea. Um, and quite often these things, crazy things come out. So I got into the habit of letting my mind just freewheel on the sound. And um, ideas for pieces come up in that way, uh, often very unexpected moments, you know, in the supermarket or something. And it's very exciting. It really is. Uh, it's lovely. Um, but you don't know which is going to be worth working with and which isn't, um, or when. And in one or two kind of extreme cases, I've thought of things for 30 years before they, they were written. <laughs> The violin concerto in Lieblicher Bloyer is one such case. I thought of that piece in March, roughly, maybe even February 1981, when I was 13, and I didn't write it until 2014-15. But what, would, what form would that take, though? Like this in, initial inchoate idea for the piece? Is it a material, a type of form, a sound image of some kind? A sound image is the predominant uh, thing and in that case it was the sound of very high violin with uh, very still wind chords and I did write a few of them down then uh, but I couldn't write the piece at all because I couldn't write anything much I mean I, I wrote pieces but I couldn't make a large scale work at all well and they were terrible bricolage type stuff I couldn't I didn't know how, how to do stuff you know I was very young so um, I put it in in a book, um, notebook, and I forgot all about it. In fact, the funny thing was that I, I remember playing those extracts several times, like I think quite a few, at the piano 
at the time. Well, they obviously went in the memory because they did pop up in the piece when I actually wrote the piece. And that was not intended. I mean, I was playing one passage through and I thought, I have some feeling I've played that before. And uh, it felt very familiar under the fingers. And then I thought, OMG, I think this is actually something I thought of all those years ago. And I finally did manage, um, towards the end of writing the work, <clears throat> by which time the passage had gone, um, I did find the sketch pad, and uh, it was there, and it was the same notes. Mm. But that was almost like a finger thing as much, a sound and fingers thing. You know, um, so some things can take that long. Um, but, I mean, the point was that at the time I was not writing music in that style at all. So it was like a very brief sort of insight into some other kind of music that I might one day write but wasn't then writing. And then 30 years later I could write that. So you have to wait. I mean, um, and that's very important. You have to know when to do it. Um, and also I think it's very important to establish a routine. I mean, the physicality of composing, if you're doing notated music, which I, which I mostly do, um, uh, very mundane things, but you know, what height of desk are you going to have? Do you angle it or not? What size chair? Do you write at the piano or do you write at right angles to the piano? Or the way I compose is, I either compose at the piano or I compose at a desk which is, well, the piano is sort of diagonally to one side behind me. It is terribly important, and there's a wonderful remark by Morton Feldman where he said, if, 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 I, if I could only find the right chair, I would rival Mozart. I think anyone who's done this activity knows what Feldman meant. It is a very, it's also actually physically very demanding and dangerous. I mean, like playing chess, it's sedentary. Um, if you're not careful, you can end up with, with back problems and arm problems, physiotherapy things, you know. It really does, you do need to be kind of careful with yourself about that. And then, too, you need to know the environment you need. Now, some composers like Shostakovich apparently could compose with noise around him and just wrote, you know. I think also um, Darius Mio could do that. Um, I can't. Um, I need you know, some quiet, and I need uh, the sort of almost action of shutting the door to just let the rest of the world take care of itself for an hour or two or three, and then just establish my own mental space to work on this music and to hear it. And it's very exciting. Um, sometimes I put CDs of Birdsong on. Uh, usually, though, that's when I'm copying, not when I'm composing. And sometimes when I'm fair copying a passage, I would put even uh, talking books on. Um, I can warmly recommend to any composer the autobiography of David Attenborough, which is... Uh, he's got a great speaking voice, and it's, it's very interesting, uh, but it's not so kind of um, obsessing that you can't do something else whilst you're hearing this. So copying, can, which can be very mechanical sometimes, copying you do need to have a bit of something going on. That I mean, Stravinsky used to have people read to him while he copied. Um, Robert Kraft said that uh, he'd, when he came across an especially tricky passage that he needed to correct, he'd suddenly say, oh, hold it, hold that sentence a sec. And then he'd sort it out, and then he'd say, yeah, what happened next? <laughs> then he'd go on reading the book, you know. I think they, the, Kraft and Vera Stravinsky read a lot of uh, literature to him while he was uh, fair copying The Rake's Progress, which of course is his biggest piece.
So you need to know what your environment is. I mean, there are composers, including Stravinsky, I think, used to do this, to start the working day with a prelude and fugue from the 48. I, I don't do that um, at all. I don't start with any music. I think Takemitsu said that before he started, he'd play the whole of St. Matthew Passion. He said it cleaned his mind out. That's amazing. Which is, which is um, interesting, because one doesn't immediately think of Bach when you hear any Takemitsu, whatever. So you never know what... People have their funny habits of this sort. Um, some people go for a run. Uh, some people, you know, have their family around them. I think somewhere on YouTube, George Crumb says he, he liked having his kids around while he composed. I, I can't have people around when I compose, no, no. Is procrastination a problem ever? I was introduced to a journal of an Australian explorer through a piece of music, actually, by the way, by a composer I very much admire, Australian composer and lives in Britain, uh, David Lumsdane, uh, who's also, by the way, a, a very fine ornithologist. And he did a remarkable piece on the journals of the Australian explorer Edward John Eyre. And there's a passage which struck me very much, where Eyre says a, a very crucial point in the expedition when he's in bad trouble and he's run out of supplies and things. And he just has just one assistant and just, just two people on this expedition, having been many partly because a lot of people were killed and partly also because uh, other people were sent packing and so on. Anyway, so there he is, and he's got to continue. It's in terrible heat. And he says each, each move was a, a dreadful effort. There was a delicious, I can't quote it exactly, but there was a delicious um, sense of relaxation in postponing that move and just lying in the heat, which of course would have resulted in him dying. And um, I think anyone who's done any kind of long-term creative project of any sort, whether it's in visual arts or anything else, if it takes a long time, will know that feeling. There's a point where you just, you think, oh my God, there's still so much to do. Do I have to do that now? You know, that is very, very, um, not that you procrastinate exactly, but there's a f it can get a bit overwhelming. Um, though I tend not to think about how far I am in, although I have actually always to know that, but I try not to think about it in terms of how much the task ahead is, because if you did, you'd seize up. And I know composers who do seize up. You know, it's, it, is, it is a demanding, psychologically, mentally, um, I don't mean you suffer greatly, I don't mean some kind of romantic thing, I just mean it is a great effort, and you do need a lot of skill and a lot of tools to do it, and um, you do need to use them, and it, it demands... I, I was always um, a bit diffident about maths when I was at school, but when I started to compose, I was, uh, as in started to write it down, I became aware of just how many decisions you had to take all the time. That's right, yeah. One of the things that I often say to, uh, to, to students when I'm teaching is that uh, you probably can't conceptualize it to yourself as I'm going to sit down and write my piece now because it's too big, it's too vast, and you're going to have to deal with thousands of problems uh, instantly if, if that's the 
frame that you're working with. Whereas if you were to say, I'm going to sit down and, and work on these three bars and just look at them mm -hmm. and figure out what I can do with them or how I can extend them or something like that. In other words, you, you, you put a frame around the problem and you make it small and you focus on this one thing. And then th it makes it a little bit, it makes the bar for entry into that particular world a, a lot lower. Well, another device that can be useful is if you, instead of trying to write, let's say, 15 minutes of uninterrupted music, if you divide it up into small stretches, um, I mean even possibly separate movements, and just write one of those, something that you can conceive of as sitting. If you look at the Arnold Schoenberg Institute's website, you can see the sketches for his five orchestral pieces from 1909, which were written fairly quickly, like a lot of Schoenberg. And if you look at the sketch, he, the, the sketch for most of them is on one big page of short score and looks like it was written at only one or two sittings. I, I don't know if that's true. Certainly the sketch for the third one, the slow one, Farben, looks like it was written out in about two hours. He suddenly got the technical idea and thought, oh, I could make music like that. All right, I'll do it, you know? And there can be something very refreshing about saying, all right, I can't solve all the problems, but I can deal with this now. And then you just do it. On the other hand, um, many pieces are not like that, and one of the skills of composing and, and challenges is writing a big, I don't mean big necessarily in terms of forces that it could be, but I mean a longer piece that, uh, you see, it's a, what people I think find it very difficult to understand is it's very, very, because time is a factor in performing music. The temporal factor in writing music is at such a remove from the time it takes to play. I mean, I would reckon the ratio is about one million to one sometimes, certainly in an orchestral piece, which may have a lot of notes. That is a long time, so that you're spending, I don't know, it could be a week writing something that lasts three seconds in performance. That could happen. On the other hand, sometimes if you're on form, particularly when you're like acting, uh, the actors say, you know, when you're in the zone, that means in composing terms, when you're probably towards the end of a piece, when you really know the piece well and you've really got to know the material and you're well into it and, you're, and you know the, the, the world the piece represents. And if you're near the end of it, some extraordinarily surprising things can happen when your imagination suddenly takes leaps ahead, your brain's in, in, in trim, it's like a gymnast, you know, you're really keyed up, and you suddenly think of things that... Uh, I, can I give an example of that? Yes, which might Okay, so there's a piece uh, which was written for the proms and the Bergen Philharmonic uh, in Norway and the Sydney Symphony called the Imaginary Museum and it's a piano concerto based in a way, well, inspired by anyway, a book by Andre Malraux about art. I won't go into the details of that. So it's in several movements and um, it was written for the pianist Stephen Osborne, a soloist. And um, I had terrible trouble writing that piece. I love Stephen Osborne's playing, but I said yes to doing it many years before I knew I could compose it. Uh, it was a very long time. And when I finally realized how I wanted to write the piece and what I wanted the piece to be, um, then, of course, when I started to write it, it turned into something else, which is even better. I like that much more. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I found the piece very challenging to write and I got to the last movement and around, so this is about four-fifths of the way through the whole work. And uh, that was, uh, I had written all the other movements by then. Most of that piece I think was written in, in the order it now stands from page one. I mentioned that because 
quite a lot of the time you don't quite write music that way, but in that case I did. And um, there I was. I got to a climactic cadenza for the soloist. had a lot of fun writing that. And I knew I needed something beyond that, but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I just... And there was two or three days of, and I was working very fast at general at that point, of, of great frustration of trying to find this, tried that, that didn't sound right at all, something else, something else, I don't know, a lot of times. And uh, then suddenly I got an idea for a, a sort of lullaby on top of a mountain, because the movement concerned is entitled Mountain. Um, a, a little bit like as like you've had a temple on top of a mountain, like one of those Tibetan temples, um, Buddhist temples, with bells being rung, but as if they made a kind of lullaby on top of that, which seems a nonsense, but why not? So I then wrote that, and um, that turned out to be matching the piano with a, a piano sound detuned on the synthesizer, tuned a quarter tone lower, and making this lullaby on them. And the rest of the orchestra echoes certain things they do, and then there's a, the lullaby is repeated, and then there's a varying phrase, and then there's another repetition variation of it. And the orchestra part is getting more and more elaborate as they dance around and make counterpoints around this lullaby. And um, it's quite complicated to write out, actually. I, I was enjoying it a great deal, but it was... It was but, and so I, I got there, and I then got to the end of the work, and that was all done in about a day. The whole thing. I still look at it and think, what were you doing? You can't do that in a day. But, you know, if you've got, if you're revved up, you can. That, that was a very long day. It was, it was probably 24 hours without any sleep at all. But I've never been more happy. It was just great. I was just having a great time. Well, you it was enormous that, fun. You mentioned that time was an important factor. But, mm. I mean, obviously, mm. when, you're a, when you're a professional composer and you have mm. institutional commissions and mm. all that, then mm. you, you do, at a certain point, have to hand in the score. Um, so how do you reconcile those two things? The, 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 in other words, taking the necessary time for an idea to reach maturation with the need to sort of keep an eye on the clock, so to speak. I think that that's why I think of pieces many years before I write them. Okay. In the case of the piano concerto, by the way, I thought of the piece relatively later because I, I was asked to do the piece 15 years before I finally wrote it. And I was in dialogue with uh, the orchestra that wanted to commission it and so on, and the other orchestras gradually too. But it was some, it was quite a few years before I agreed to start work. Um, so you must know when you're, when you're ready. And you know, that's not always easy. And of course, uh, I don't want to go into the details of this, but you know, to earn a living, uh, composing and doing nothing else is, is a, quite a challenge. And uh, that's why, like many composers, I teach composition and I teach music. Um, and I'm very busy doing that. I, ha I have a very busy job doing that, and I take that very seriously. It's a big responsibility, which I take very seriously, and um, which I also enjoy very much. So you have to try and work out ways in which you can... When can you compose? Not only... I mean, when in the week can you compose? How many hours a week can you compose? How many do you need at this point in the piece or that? Some weeks you may need to spend only a few hours doing it, and then just think about what you're doing for the rest of the time. And other times, you may need to really devote many more hours, so you have to balance all these different concerns. And uh, that's a challenge, yeah. Yeah, it is a challenge. 
but on the other hand, as I say, if you get it right, and you usually know when you've got it right, uh, because it feels like nothing else when it's right, then it is very rewarding and very exciting. And then when you're writing for some great soloist like Stephen Osborne, a fantastic player, that's also very inspiring. You know, you get revved up by that notion or working with the conductor of that premiere, Elan Volkov, wonderful conductor I've known many years, just great. It's, 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 this, you know, makes you feel also that you're wanted as a composer. Human beings are human beings. They don't mind that they're working with somebody who, you know, wants to work with them. It's very satisfying and um, you, you don't want to just write for a void. You, you want to write for people. And that doesn't just mean the audience, it means above all, I think, the musicians. It's the greatest privilege and honor to be able to create music for the musicians, who, after all, we should remember how many, I mean, you know, I've said how difficult training can be to, to, to become a composer, but, I mean, you know, for a pianist, if you haven't started by the age of about 10, almost forget it. It's not quite true. But it can be. Is that true with composition? No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. No. There are different ways of doing this. No, I know composers who started composing when they were 50, and they're very good composers, so it's clearly not true. But that doesn't mean they didn't train in something musical before that. They probably train... I mean, if an instrumentalist trained very thoroughly and is very well educated, then, you know, they'll have learnt a lot, which could stand them in quite good stead, very good stead as a composer. It depends on, on many, many factors, and also a big leap of the imagination. But no, there's no rules. I mean, also, you might train very thoroughly when young and be a very boring composer for the first 30 years and then suddenly become Elliot Carter. Um, you know, you just never know. Lutostavsky didn't, but that's partly because of his troubles with the communist regime in Poland. He, he didn't develop uh, full maturity until his, after, uh, I think, certainly late 40s. Um, Ligeti, slightly similar reason because of troubles with communist Hungary, didn't emerge as Ligeti until his late 30s and so on and so forth. I mean, these things do take time anyway. On the other hand, Olivier Messiaen emerged as Olivier Messiaen with Le Bonque Celeste, which he wrote when he was about 20, so there's no rule. There's no rule. It's not like maths where I'm told that you have to work very hard when very young, and if you haven't had any major ideas off the age of I forget what, then you're never going to have them. I've no idea if that myth is true, but that's what one is told. The composition is not like that at all. Why it isn't, I don't know, because it certainly is mentally taxing, or can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it is. It, it's, an, it's an incredibly difficult endeavor on, on many levels at the same time. But it is an honor because you're working with, as I say, pianists. I mean, you know, these people who spent you know ten hours a day practicing for half their life, more than half their life, you know, and and that they actually want to devote that time to you, is a great honor. And as a composer, you're, I think, a bit of a fool if you don't leap at the chance. I certainly would. So, well, so tell us about the cello concerto, then. Which, so first of all, who, who are you writing that for? So we're talking about musicians and, and, the, uh, and the extraordinary honor it is to, to work with very fine performers. Who is the soloist in the, in the cello concerto you're working on? I'm, I'm working on that uh, for Alban Gerhardt, a wonderful German cellist, whom I met funnily enough, partly through Stephen Osborne, who knows him very well. And um, so I've loved his playing for years and years and years. I've heard other composers' works for him, like Unsuk Chin, who wrote a beautiful cello concerto for him. More recently, Brett Dean wrote one, and other composers. He's worked a lot with composers. But I've also very much admired his Brahms playing, his playing of the quartet for the end of time of Messiaen, which has a wonderful cello solo in it. 
and much other repertoire besides. So I was, uh, I never even dared hope for that. And then he suddenly asked, would I do a, P- a check concerto? God, yeah, of course, immediately. But any composer who's done it, and I never have before, will tell you that writing a cello concerto poses very special problems because the cello and the orchestra doesn't balance. And actually, many very well-known cello concertos do not quite balance properly, I'm afraid. Uh, the, notoriously, the Brahms double concerto for, you know, doesn't quite balance sometimes. Um, you do have to be very careful about how much of the orchestra is playing when the cello is playing. And the only concerto I know which gets that absolutely un- unfailingly right is the Dutier's Tout un monde lointain. But you have a look at the score. The cello's playing almost nobody else is. He was very clever. It doesn't sound like that, but actually the orchestra suddenly thins out totally whenever the cello's uh, playing. It's, it's, uh, the other piece that does actually balance, I should say, of the contemporary ones anyway, is, or modern, is the Lusoslavsky. Which starts with a long solo. Both of them do, in fact. And, of course, both written for the same cellist. Very different pieces, though. So I looked at those, I looked at the Vorjak, which I adore, I looked at pieces by Chirino, um, all kinds of stuff, Bach cello suites, um, a piece for Puck cello that I admire very much by my friend Zoe Martlew, who's a wonderful composer and cellist, um, which uh, aroused my interest in pizzicato, and uh, that's something that's very important in this concerto, uh, the plucked sound. Um, oh, all kinds of stuff. And um, then I, I had several different ideas. One was to write a piece about cranes. I've been looking very much at a book called A Hundred Drawings in a Single Stroke by Hokusai, which is just that. They're, they're little imaginary drawings of all kinds of things, but done with the minimum of brushstrokes. It's not quite in a single stroke each, actually. I have to say some of them are two or three, but it's, it's very... And what, there's two pages of drawings of cranes. I, by the way, I mean the bird, obviously, not the thing that you... Yeah. Um, and these cranes are in every conceivable pose, in mid-flight, with one leg up in the air, then scratching itself, then picking food up, or looking this way, that way, any conceivable pose of, of the bird that you can think. But all of them in these fantastic little tiny brushstroke cameos. And I thought that was wonderful, and I've always loved the call of cranes. And I listened to lots of recordings of that and thought they sounded like cellos. I didn't do that piece. (laughs) I'd started it, actually, and got a certain distance in it and then thought, nah, this is naff. I was just making crane-like noises on a cello. It was kind of silly. It It wasn't real cello music. And it wasn't... And the sound effects side of it was pretty cheap and tawdry. It wasn't that. So that went in the bin or rather in the drawer anyway. But it was useful having tried that and gave me some ideas. You mentioned it mm. earlier to me that, uh, that this was a piece that had quite a long uh, gestation period and that you were having some difficulty with at one point. I have had difficulty with it, yes. And I've chucked away a lot of music for it, um, I think rightly, because you need to make sure that you, know, you do the best you can. Um, oddly, one thing that did trigger something, I was starting uh, one section when uh, the... Cathedral of Notre Dame burnt down in when was that? April fifteenth, my birthday. Yeah. And I I wrote the uh God, your birthday, poor you. Yeah, Awful. yeah that was that was quite a shock. I bet. Yeah. Anyway, um I looked at that. I got home from uh teaching, I think, and uh switched on the computer and saw this terrible 
footage and was very shocked and um, very touched by the response to it of people uh, singing and all that. Well, I, I, that's fed into the piece somehow. Yeah. So I can't, it's not program music, but I always wanted to write a lyrical slow section in the concerto and that became a bit of a lament. Uh, for that in incredible building, which of course has, in cultural terms, a huge symbolism for Western art and music. I mean, the first surviving piece, anyway, of Western four-part music, um, Vida and Omnes by um, Perrotown, was, we know, was composed for that building, which wasn't completed entirely by that stage, but still, it, we know even which, I think it was written for Christmas 1198, I think we know that. So, you know, and if you look at Kenneth Clark's uh, programs for television called Civilization, he starts there. So that you see that it has a certain totemic almost significance, and it's just a very, very beautiful building. And to see that happening to it was very um, searing experience, and that went into the piece. But it's not the whole of the story, and in fact, uh, there isn't any story behind the rest of it, really. It's, it's the story of the cello for me. It's what that cello can do, what that player can do, and how the orchestra interacts with that player. And um, I'm thinking of that player all the time when I write it. And I, you know. The cello in my life. It's not autobiographical, uh, whereas the Feldman pieces, to some extent, partly were, in fact. Uh, there was a person uh, who was the viola in his life, in fact. Um, I can't remember her name now. Yeah. She was a violist living in New York. Um, but um, whom, incidentally, by complete coincidence, my father knew her and her first husband. Well, they were friends of our family. So, funny. Um, but, uh, no, it's just how this instrument and the orchestra interacted. To some extent, it's like a dramatic play, but it, without any concepts beyond the one I just said. Uh, it's quite, an, in that sense, quite an abstract work, whereas my violin concerto was not abstract at all. It's very much to do with Hölderlin's poem. So when will the piece be premiered? In February next year. Right, okay, relatively soon. Yes, and in fact, I have just finished it. Oh, good. Well, congratulations. So we're looking forward to hearing it very much. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. And uh, I think that's a good place to, to end. Um, and, um, and wishing you all the best with your future compositions. Well, thank you. And also to say that I, I like your YouTube channel very much. And I wish, I hope lots of people look at your channel because there's so much different music that you analyze in it. I think it's great the way you talk about music and uh, all sorts of people can learn a lot from that. So it's a pleasure to be part of that. Thank you very much.